Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you breaking news, all the big stories, plus expert insight and analysis from all around the globe. Last weekend, of course, it was a Champions League final and we'll reflect on that in a little bit. I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by our very own transfer guru, Duncan Castles, as usual. And we're going to start with some breaking news that we always like to bring you. As we all know, Manchester United's season ended in failure and uh, their transfer policy does not seem to be looking much better despite the time I've had to, to think about it. Duncan, you've got some breaking news? Yes, um, on one of the positions that Manchester United don't actually want to reinforce in, but I've had to go seeking potential reinforcements because um, they have not managed to uh, agree a new contract with David De Gea and are increasingly concerned they're going to lose him this summer. Um, we told you on the Transfer Window podcast in previous weeks that they had um, been in contact with Jasper Sillison at Barcelona um, as a potential replacement, that their first choice was Andre Onana at Ajax and they'd made an offer to Ajax for uh, the Cameroon International, which had been rejected. Um, we also mentioned that they'd been scouting the Leo goalkeeper, uh, Mike Mignon, um, who has just been voted uh, the top goalkeeper in the French League after Leo finished second to Paris Saint-Germain this season and just been called into the, the French national team. Um, as we suggested might happen on the podcast, they've now been in contact with Leo and inquired about Mignon's availability um, with the Leo president. Uh, they were told that he is available for sale for the right money. Um, the asking price from Leo, I'm told, is 35 million euros, uh, which is 5 million less than uh, Onana's price uh, at Ajax, uh, but um, and this is the way the transfer market goes, um, Ajax had previously been in contact with Leo um, looking at Mignon as a replacement for Anana should Manchester United buy the player. At the time they'd been told £25 million for the price. Um, the price has now gone up to 35 for Manchester United. I asked my contact why that was the case and they said, well, if um, they're prepared to pay the best part of €40 million Euros for Anana, then it will cost them £35 million to get our goalkeeper because he's better than uh, Ajax's goalkeeper. And as we've kind of continually discussed and our listeners have always been asking questions, Duncan, how can a club as big as Manchester United find themselves in a situation like this when they know De Gea was out of contract uh, one year in the summer, when they know that their own negotiations with the player and his agents had stalled to the point where they were non-existent? So... They now look like almost, you know, an amateur club looking around with scattergun approaches. Going to one club saying, oh, give us a price for your player. That club then go to another club, in this case, Leo. Oh, we'd like him to replace. Then managers go, oh, hang on. If, if he's that good, then maybe we'd like him as well. Or maybe we should and end up being, as you said, get an inflated price of 10 million 
uh, more <clears throat> than, in fact, um, IACs were quoted. Uh, we know they've got five heads of recruitment currently working in the, in the club. They're looking for uh, at least a technical director, if not another recruitment um, uh, official, let's just say someone high up, uh, and they're talking to former players about that. It just It all just seems chaotic. I think that's what it is. It is chaotic and it's naive. And, and De Gea is the prime example of that. Um, you know, as, as we've discussed previously, De Gea wanted to sign a new contract at Manchester United um, a couple of years ago um, when his contract, when he was in a good place with the club, um, having uh, uh, had a, a, a positive first season under Jose Mourinho. They'd won the Europa League final. Um, the, the club se- seemed to be an upward trajectory. Um, he was actually asking United to improve his terms at that point. United were not interested in discussing the matter with him. They left it until um, essentially a year before his contract finished, albeit they have this option of an additional year, which they've now entered into. Um, And by the time they made a solid proposal, he was frustrated um, that, had left it so long and he had uh, proposals from other clubs on the table and was aware how much he could get he could make from moving elsewhere um, how much he could potentially gain as a free agent um, worried to wait his contract out and, and take um, whatever transfer fee a club would offer for him now a percentage of that as a signing on fee and more importantly after Alexis Sanchez um, joined the club and was put on a uh, higher, a significantly higher wage than De Gea's and failed to perform. So, you know, De Gea's uh, camp's argument has been our player has been the best player at this club over the last seven seasons. He's repeatedly been voted into Premier League Team of the Year. I think five of the last seven Premier League Teams of the Year. He's your best performer. He deserves the top wages. Uh, Why aren't you paying them? Uh, And this has gone on for the best part of the last season. It's become more and more um, difficult and fractious uh, to the point where if you ask some people around De Gea um, where United to offer him the wages he wanted now would, they, would he stay, they say even that is open to question because, the, because the, the, the relationship between him and the club has been damaged by the way they've handled him. And this uh, basic statement from Woodward in the negotiations, that he would not match those terms, whatever the conditions, he was not going to match those terms because he wasn't going to be caught out in the way he um, had been caught out over Alexis Sanchez. Um, You also have to pair alongside this that several of De Gea's closest teammates um, have uh, feel like they've been badly treated by the club in, in this past season. I think a key individual here is Ander Herrera, who um, has now left on freedom of contract. He was in a similar situation to De Gea in that he was asking for a new deal. Um, I can tell you that from uh, more than one source, uh, my information is that Herrera was actually proposed a pay cut by Manchester United um, to stay at the club. Contrary to what you'll have seen reported elsewhere, that he was demanding a massive increase to stay at the club. What actually happened, I'm told, and reliably told, was they offered him a pay cut. He felt disrespected and then um, entered into negotiations with other clubs, including Paris Saint-Germain, agreed a contract with Paris Saint-Germain and left. Um, it has been noted amongst 
Manchester United's playing group that players like Chris Smalling and Phil Jones, English players, have been given pay rises and substantial long-term deals to stay at the club. Whereas someone like Herrera, who um, you could, I think, very fairly argue was more important to Solskjaer tactically uh, and uh, more important in his performances for the team uh, since Solskjaer took over the club, was not um, offered a pay rise. It was offered a pay cut and ended up leaving the team. That has gone down badly and it's, I think, contributed to a division that's emerged in the, in the dressing room between um, a number of the non-British players and some of the British players about um, their uh, feeling about Solskjaer and the way that the club is going forward. And all of this feeds into transfer policy and these kind of decisions. And as you say, this kind of scattergun, scattergun approach that they're taking to chasing um, a goalkeeper, not necessarily knowing for sure whether they have to buy that goalkeeper. Um, and that could all have been avoided by settling terms with their best player some time ago. Um, they just Everything they do seems to complicate the, the issue for themselves and make it harder for the manager and make it harder for the team on the field. As a image Duncan of um, Ed Woodward and you know, you know, five heads of recruitment squeezing into a, a little private plane uh, and just jetting from one city to, we're next, Amsterdam. Yeah, let's go quick. We're next, Leo, we've heard their keepers available. Let's try there as well. <laughs> all, all the time. Trailing a banner behind them, saying "Oli is great." I think I think there's there is actually a you know a serious point here in that Manchester United recruitment staff. Let's forget about the head of the recruitments and that bizarre setup they have. But the recruitment staff is the biggest in the Premier League, probably the biggest in Europe. Um, as we we told you several times, it's been it was an Ed Woodward innovation just before. Jose Mourinho came to the club to ask a, a London headhunting company to um, secure, uh, in inverted commas, the best scouts in football for the club and build that um, grotesquely large uh, recruitment structure. What, why is this a problem? Well, if you've got 50 plus scouts going around the world looking for players, they have to justify their existence. So they have to propose players and do groundwork on transfers so I think one of the reasons you see so many players connected with Manchester United is there are so many um, employed club scouts and officials and people in the recruitment department who are doing their job which is watching players and then contacting uh, agents or family and uh, working out uh, what it would take to get the player um, as part of their you know their due diligence of the reporting on, on potential recruits. And um, then you you uh, you have this repeated stories of different players being involved in, and lots of different players thinking that they're, they're genuine candidates. And then I think more importantly, you don't have a coherent experience figure at the top of that tree, um, a director of football who is skilled, really skilled in recruitment, um, to make the final decision making and say well we, we don't need these players we don't need that player this is the kind of structure team we want these are the, the long term problems we have to solve in the way that Manchester City work you know it's they, they are looking at the recruitment years ahead they're not trying to solve uh, problems with their best player not actually knowing whether they, the, the player will leave or not um, already into the summer with no director of football in place 
it reminds me, Duncan, of the situation which existed at Chelsea for the first four or five years of Roman Bravich's tenure as owner, where there was a you know there was the, the, the pyramid of power, if you like, <clears throat> with Abramovich then, of course, very much hands on and involved. And then you had this kind of uh, descending uh, sort of power struggle where everyone wanted to be the guy who did the best thing for Chelsea, therefore have Roman's ear and have his, his you know, um, uh, I guess his endorsement in order that, you know, they were the best person to be trusted, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems like when you've got a situation like that where many people are trying to impress one, or in this case the Glazers and Edward at the top, <clears throat> then the squabbling uh, can become, you know, quite destructive and negative for the club, and then you end up with no no single policy, but indeed many. And my information, as well as it, like we know, football transfers is a, a pretty small and incestuous environment. It's a very gossipy environment, and um, I'm told that Manchester United have got a, a big interest in Leicester City's attacking midfielder James Madison. Madison is 22 <clears throat> and is currently with England's um, under 21. Uh, European squad for the uh, the, the Euro- European League finals this this summer um, is interested in moving for Leicester, but he wants Champions League football. So cross against Manchester United for that straight away. But more interestingly, his representatives in conversations with people at the top of Manchester United, he has been he has asked his representatives to express his reservations about. Um, well, first of all, you know what are you going to do about what looks like quite a, a kind of de- demotivated and. Uh, dysfunctional squad. What am I getting myself? What am I getting myself into? Are you, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer really going to be there for three years, or is he going to be going? Um, I want at my stage of my career to be playing the majority of game time. <clears throat> you know, what's your answer to that question, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so when I, I played from Leicester City, albeit a very good one, remember, um, thirty-six appearances, seven goals, made the most goal chances in the Premier League ahead of any other player, one hundred exactly. Um, so you're talking about someone who at 22 could become a very, very good player um, at any club. He's asking questions about what the transfer pot is at Manchester United. And of course, Duncan, you've got even some more news on um, a p- possible midfield departure. Yeah, look, I think if Manchester United can get a deal in place for James Madison, that would be a very good way for them to go forward. He's in a superb first season in the Premier League. Um he is English, which is a, a, a huge um, attraction uh, to any Premier League team. Um, he could add that creativity in midfield. And I think importantly, he could be the player to um, replace a lot of the creativity they'll lose if Real Madrid, Madrid get their way and sign Paul Pogba this summer. Uh, and what I can tell you is that Madrid are confident that they can get a deal in place for Pogba, they've they had a um, transfer meeting last week to firm up uh, their proposed squad for next season, and um, the the conclusion was Hazard uh, will be part of that squad. As um, as you told us last week, they they are sure they have that deal in place, and he will be coming. And the the next uh, important. Um, high-profile signing is to be Paul Pogba. They think, and I quote, it is really possible we get the player. Um, they're doing that on the basis that uh, Pogba wants to to get out. He stated that himself. Uh, Mino Raiola, his agent, would want that deal to happen. Um, they see this kind of uh, 
dysfunction within Manchester United and think they can exploit it. Um, and they believe that they can do it with a cash plus player deal and are prepared to offer um, a number of players from their squad to Manchester United in the hope that they bite on one or two of those and can get the overall transfer fee down. Um, Gareth Bale is a very um, important uh, candidate as one of the players they think they can convince Ed Woodward to take, which will be an interesting test case because we know that Woodward has tried to sign Bale on multiple occasions before and has always been stymied uh, either by the player or by Real Madrid. Um, but uh, in this case, he now has the opportunity to do it. The suggestion and the briefing has been that Manchester United are not convinced about Bale anymore. Um, I think for logical reasons that he has spent uh, much of his last few years in Madrid injured um, and his commitment towards the game is uh, very much in question. Uh, and of course, he comes with a, a, a huge salary of uh, 22 million euros net. Um, so an expensive, very expensive addition and questionable addition to the squad. But um, Madrid think they can do something there. And I guess if you're looking at Ed Woodward's history in the transfer market, then you would always say there is the possibility of persuading um, someone to, to make a headline by a guy who would have a great commercial um, resonance for the club and, uh, and could be sold as, look, look at what we're doing. We are bringing one of the best players in the world back to the club. Um, even if we're losing Paul Pogba as part of the deal. So, so that's um, a suggestion. Uh, Tio Hernandez is a left-back um, who is, uh, they don't have a slot for in the squad because Zidane wants to keep Marcelo and uh, they have a deal in place to bring uh, Ferland Mendy, the French international left-back, over. Um, there'd be suggestions that they would offer Isco to United. I'm told that Zidane wants to keep Isco as part of his squad, so that's that's probably off the agenda. Um, but uh, I think the important thing here is you will see uh, Madrid uh, go into, uh, into full uh, efforts to bring Pogba to United and United are going to have to make a decision on whether they uh, say no to that and persist with Pogba for another season with all the problems he's caused uh, to both managers he, he's had this year or whether they say, right, uh, it's time to cash in on that player. Uh, we made a mistake. We can still get uh, significant value from for him from Madrid. We can take his very large wage off our wage bill and we can allocate that money elsewhere to rebuild. And as I was saying, if they can get Madison in, um, who would cost a fraction of Pogba's wages. And uh, as a transfer fee, I think you'd be looking, what, £60 million pounds for, for Madison. Um, that's not cheap for, for the age of player, but if he can provide as many goals as he has done for Leicester and the Manchester United team, then that, I think, would be a clever deal and, uh, and would be a far less problematic player to have in your squad than, than Pogba. That's true. Um, as <clears throat> the late great... Um, and a friend of ours, um, uh, Hugh McAvaney, once said of Ronnie Johnson, if he was a Red Indian, his name would be Broken Wing. Um, I think if Gareth Bale was Red Indian, his name would be sort of damaged, seven iron. Um, if indeed Red Indians are into playing golf. Seriously, Duncan, we talked a lot about Matthias Delecht 
and his potential move away from Ajax last week. Now, I understand you've had conversations with certain people regarding the position of centre-back at Manchester United and confirmation indeed that De Ligt is not on their radar. That's what Manchester United are saying. Um, look, we know Manchester United made a, a huge uh, financial offer to De Ligt and Raiola uh, to come there and, uh, and they've made a big effort to persuade the player to um, dump his uh, verbal agreement, I think is, is a good way of phrasing it, with Barcelona um, and, uh, and tried hard on that deal. But what Manchester United are telling people um, who are discussing the centre-back position with them is that the Ligt will not be coming to the club um, to disregard what they have seen in the press um, because the deal is not going to happen. They are looking for, to add uh, one centre-back. Um, they've now shifted their stance in that they uh, were earlier in the summer, they were, their idea was uh, to stick with the players uh, they had. Um, and we're talking before before the season ended, that Solskjaer was happy with his centre-backs and if they added one, it would just be a young, uh, developing centre-back uh, who would come in as a, as a backup to the current group and would hopefully develop into a starter. They now recognise they need a more experienced individual, not necessarily um, someone in his uh, late 20s or 30s, but uh, not that category of... Um, development centre-back, someone someone who would actually play. Um, and De Ligt is, according to them, not going to happen. Um, separately, I'm told that De Ligt has, is now in conversations, or Raiola is now in conversations with Paris Saint-Germain about him moving there, which is an entirely logical move for Raiola to make, um, given the situation with Barcelona, in that Barcelona prepared to pay De Ligt €9 million Euros a year as a salary, as a teenager to come to the club at around the same level as they're playing, paying Frankie de Jong, his friend and Ajax teammate, to join. Um, Raiola, having talked to Manchester United, went back to Barcelona and asked for more money on the deal uh, in salary and commission. Barcelona are refusing to pay that. Um, as we told you last week, the reasons they refuse to pay that is they feel that should they give De Ligt uh, the €14 million Euros a season that Raul is asking, they will immediately have a large number of their senior players coming to them saying, you're paying a teenager that amount of money, you have to give me a pay rise too. Um, they don't want that. They don't want to be pushed around by Raiola. They are hoping that De Ligt will be strong enough to say, I want to play at Barcelona and I will accept a lower but still extremely substantial salary for, for an individual of his age to play there. Um, Raiola, as I say, has, has now gone to one of the other clubs with huge financial resources in the European game and suggested that they might want to take their client, knowing that um, Paris Saint-Germain's top centre-back, Thiago Silva, who, who I would argue for a long time was the best centre-back in football, is ageing and uh, somewhat injury prone and that the lift would be a very, I think, sensible and rational um, uh, choice for them. I also think it, it's a, it would be an interesting one for Raiola to propose to the lift because you would be going to uh, a league where he'd be under um, less uh, 
pressure from high balls, which is the one weakness in his game, than if he moved to the Premier League. He'd be going to a team who would be expected to win the title and uh, and then and should he win it easily and then challenge in the Champions League where he's also already demonstrated himself to be uh, a top performer. Um, so as a, as a staging post uh, for taking your career, a move to Paris Saint-Germain I think is more attractive or could be, could be perceived by a lot of people as being more attractive than a move to Manchester United. Um, and you do have the real possibility that Paris Saint-Germain will say, we will offer that money, which you can then take back to Barcelona and say, OK, here's your choice. Uh, we've got the money from Paris Saint-Germain. The kid is prepared to go there. Either you match that or, or he goes there. Um, we also have Manchester City in this quick, in a quick equation. In that, as we told you, Manchester City have a, a strong interest in the league. We've been monitoring for a long time. Ajax at one point this season thought uh, City were the most likely club to buy him. Um, I think uh, Raiola will continue to work on that to see what money he can get on offer from uh, City to do that deal. And then, um, and then, pose uh, the decision to the player as to where he eventually goes. I guess a very obvious question, Duncan, to ask would be <clears throat> where are Liverpool in all of this, given that they already have Van Dijk, Delict's central defensive partner from the Netherlands at the club. They've seen the success uh, that they have achieved and indeed the plaudits Van Dijk has gained uh, for the way that he has marshaled that defence. It seems to me that Delict and Van Dijk together could potentially be the best centre-half pairing in the world. Having just become Champions League winners for the sixth time, I suspect um, Jurgen Klopp um, would think that he has, you know, got the Charlie, <coughs> sorry, Willy Wonka um, golden ticket to do exactly what he wants in transfer market, and therefore, you know, if he wants to lick, he could say to Tom Werner uh, and Fenway Sports Group, look, you know, if you want to win the Premier League next season. Let's face it, Joel Matip probably isn't a long-term solution or even a short-term solution. So get this guy for less money probably than we, we, we bought Virgil for and um, we could go on and win the Premier League and, and possibly make Champions League again. Yeah, well, look, Fenway Sports Group have, have uh, given a number of interviews around the Champions League final where they've indicated that they're prepared to spend again this summer in support of Klopp and to go and win the Premier League, um, which, you know, they're very uh, vocally targeting for next season. Um, I don't, I, I, I know that, that uh, Liverpool like the lift, everyone likes the lift, it's, it's not a big surprise, but realistically, I'm not sure that works for them. Um, they have Joe Gomez um, as a young uh, English centre-back who uh, did very well for them in the first half of the season before he got injured. So that seems the obvious combination going forward for for Liverpool, assuming uh, Gomez comes back um, from I think what, what ended up being quite, well, certainly a more complicated injury than it was presented as by Klopp uh, when it initially happened. But assuming he comes back in, in proper physical condition, that you would think would be the partnership for next season. Matip did extremely well for them uh, when he was uh, kind of forced into the side by Gomez's injuries and, and issues with Lovren uh, towards the end of the season. I don't think uh, there were very few occasions in which he let them down in that period. So they've got a, a good, reliable backup already. Um, we, 
we've explained uh, what the kind of money Raiola is asking for. That salary, if he, if he was to get 14 million net from Liverpool for De Ligt or near it, that would make him uh, significantly higher paid than Van Dijk, who is already very well paid at, at Liverpool and would obviously cause the same kind of problems that um, Barcelona are worried about in the dressing room. Um, and I think the transfer fee would be would essentially be at the same level as Van Dijk. You would be talking about £75 million for the player with the, the nature of the clubs involved and the, the price that was established by De Jong um, from Barcelona for buying a young Ajax player, which was €75 million Euros plus 11 in bonuses. So I think there are issues there. Um, in principle, yeah, great idea, but I think... It's not the most efficient use of such a large sum of money. Um, as as we, we uh, discussed in the podcast, they have uh, made an inquiry with Lille's uh, forward, Nicola Pepe. Um, as yet, I don't think, I, I'm told there's not an offer into Lille for the player, but that to me is a, a much better addition uh, to Liverpool than uh, De Ligt at, at, at present. I think they need a creative midfielder um, so spend your money there and they, they have to sign a backup left back and they could probably do with a, with some kind of backup to um, Alexander-Arnold at right back unless they want to, to share that between, you know, shift Gomez between centre-back and right back when necessary as they did uh, in this past season. So I think they'll spend the money elsewhere. Lots of stories are certainly reports anyway are floating about about um, Jurgen Klopp being off the new contract. That's hardly surprising given uh, he's just led Liverpool to their sixth European Cup title. Um, I think it's interesting, in fact, that my information was that those discussions began more than a month ago with Fenway Sports Group uh, and that they were um, effectively initiated because... Um, FSG were worried that Bayern Munich had been contacting Klopp or his representatives, certainly his lawyer, about possibility of him leaving uh, to go to the Alliance Arena. Obviously, that would be, um, I think, well, Bayern Munich is the job if you're a German coach. Uh, and I think Klopp himself probably sees himself in charge of Bayern Munich at some point in his future career. But those um, talks about a new contract were initiated, as I said, about four weeks ago and have been ongoing I don't think, from what I'm told, from people close to FSG or even Klopp, there'll be any problem obviously extending it. He's obviously enjoying his time at Liverpool. I think obviously the, the, the winning of the Premier League title would obviously that would be the, the crowning glory, uh, not just for the manager, but for um, his players. And so I think Klopp uh, remaining and having a, an extended contract, as well as, as Duncan said, um, a bigger kitty to spend is going to be very, very interesting for them. Duncan, you mentioned a few positions um, that you think need to strengthen, but if you were to pick one that would make the difference in terms of winning the Premier League next season, where would you pinpoint that? I think it's, I think it's the creat creativity in midfield. I think they lack um, real uh, quality passing there and invention there. I think the best passer of the ball they have is Fabinho. Um, who's playing as a number six? Ironically, the, the, the defensive midfielder, um, Henderson Wijnaldum. Yeah, I think we both know it's James Milner, though, don't we? And you're just you just <laughs> say, you're just saying this for being best penalty taker. I'll give him that. <laughs> um, 
but they 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 need that for those games where um, they hit uh, a defensive brick wall um, and where they're, they're yeah. not getting. So a game breaker, Duncan, is what you're saying. He's a game breaker. Yeah, a, a game breaker, and when they can't use their their pace um, on the counter attack as effectively to score goals, and and they have, but they've been very clever this season in adding set piece. Um, effectiveness to their teams they score a lot they've worked on their set pieces and they score more goals from them and that's one way of breaking down opponents that sit in but they still have problems um, you, that's not solved it for them every time uh, you know as, as we said previously I think the realistic gap between Manchester City um, and, uh, and Liverpool in terms of actual performances is about 10 points you know, Liverpool were got Eight points from goalkeeping errors this season. They got a number of refereeing uh, decisions go in their favour. If you look at statistics like expected goals, which aren't perfect, but they give you a sense of of um, of what the average result would have been in a game if you iron out the, the the good fortune. They were definitely significantly behind that one point that it actually ended up being the table so they need either to hope that Man City come back towards them which is possible um, or add to uh, their um, armoury um, and I think if you assume that you get as many games out of Firmino, Salah and Mane in the coming season as they did this season which in itself is a big assumption because they really did not suffer many injuries from, from those three key players. If you assume you, you can use them as much as you did this season, which is a big assumption, then you put the money towards, for me, that creativity in midfield. But I think um, more sensible would be to add another uh, uh, forward as well of the Nicola Pepe type or the Timo Bernal type, as you suggest. Although Rigi is now... Rigi in the, the late part of the season has kind of thrown himself back into the mix as a player you can bring off the bench and, and use uh, that physical striker up front and, and, and actually take chances uh, very efficiently. So, um, yeah, probably the, that fast um, alternative to the three players they've got and a creative midfielder. But if I were to play Satan's solicitor here, I could say, well, they had that player in Felipe Coutinho sold him and became a better team all round. And continuous, if nothing else, he is a game-breaker player with that ability to pass in or round a corner, take the free kick, win the free kick, etc., etc. And they improved in terms of their performances by selling continue. Or are you thinking about a player who plays no, a little they, bit further they, back? Yeah, look, let's not confuse um, position with correlation. It's... Uh, Yes, they improved after Coutinho left. Did they improve because Coutinho left? I don't think so. I think if you ask Jurgen Klopp uh, in the ideal world if he could have had um, 120 million initial fee uh, and, uh, and, and not had the problem of Coutinho leaving the dressing room, so got that money to invest in Van Dijk, uh, to invest in Alisson, um, and retain continue within his squad, then he would have said, yes, I absolutely want to keep continue in the squad. If, you, if, if he's not going to be a problem player, uh, I'd love to still have him there and then get the, the, the really good centre-back that we need and the excellent goalkeeper that we need. And 
let, let's face it, in that Champions League final, Alisson was man of the match for Liverpool. Yeah. Um, you know, a series of very good saves towards the end of the game um, that that secured uh, the, the the European Cup for them. So, so, so is Nicolas Pepe potentially that player then, Duncan, the game breaker? No, I think I think Pepe is another Salah, another Mane. He's a vertical yeah. player who, um, who who fits into that system. What what you need is the guy who can play in small spaces and who can hit the passes. Like Christian Eriksen would be would be a great addition to Liverpool. A hard working player who could do the pressing game, do the hard work in midfield that they need, but also um, beat a player in tight spaces and make the make the the pass that breaks open a, a lot of defence. That that's the 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 game breaker player. I think they need to really take themselves to another level. As far as the Champions League other uh, contender was concerned, Spurs <clears throat> obviously very disappointing for them. I thought they were poor. They seemed to be lacking in energy right from the kickoff. Obviously, um, I've been told by people close to some of the Spurs players that there was unhappiness um, when they found out that Harry Kane would start the match on the basis that they'd seen him in training and it was nowhere near match fit. I think everyone could see that with their own eyes um, during the during the game as well. And uh, I think Pochettino made some other errors with regards to team selection. Duncan, I, I think you were a bit concerned by Harry Winks starting as well, weren't you? Look, I think he took a big risk in that you have two players coming back from injury um, who are not uh, match fit in the sense that they had not had any kind of um, competitive game to test themselves in and you put them into the most important game in the history of the club um, I think that's fair to say that uh, and into 30 degree temperature against a team renowned for their fitness and renowned for their running ability um, yes great to have Harry Kane back available and I don't think he was that far off it but he wasn't top level Harry Kane and you know with Harry Kane we're talking about a player who's notorious for um, starting season slowly um, even when he's uh, when he should be fully fit so you, you you probably would ask a question about whether he's one of these players who takes a little bit longer um, to get themselves back to peak form um, when they come back from injury than others because there is variation in that um, in a situation like that the obvious thing to do particularly when Lucas Moura had uh, got them into the final and had been playing so well recently, the obvious thing to do was to start Lucas and use uh, Kane off the bench as an impact player. Um, you know, he, he has all the qualities to be a great, you know, the best possible kind of impact substitute. And, and by doing it that way, you then level out uh, the advantage the Liverpool players have in fitness because they would already have ran... 45 minutes at least, but maybe 60 minutes before you bring him on the pitch. Um, so it doesn't surprise me what you're saying, that uh, that uh, people within the, the Tottenham camp, uh, other players, were unhappy with Pochettino's decision to play in the final. I think Winks had a better game than Kane, but again, it's the same issue. If you're just coming back from injury, you put them into a match like that, and uh, and he, and you know he had a lot of work to do uh, in that uh, defensive midfield role with um, Sissoko beside him. It's asking a lot from a player, but it was a poor game. Let's let's face it. Uh, Tottenham, it I think, I think Tottenham uh, were on the back foot immediately because of what was 
for me, a, a terrible decision to give a penalty. Um, it's that was not intentional handball. Um, it hit the player's chest first. Uh, yes, under one of the reinterpretations of the laws of the game that UEFA have been using in the Champions League this season, there was an argument for giving a penalty there. But as we've discussed in the podcast, that reinterpretation is extremely problematic. It's caused uh, controversy in number and numerous knockout round games this season. Um, it's I I think it is a. a an incorrect interpretation of the laws of the game. Um, and uh, there, there seems to be this um, decision to take on uh, the new uh, handball rule, which I, I, I you know, we discussed this in March on the podcast, that it's going to be a, a recipe for disaster next season, the, the new handball rule. Um, I was just looking at it this morning and it's actually got the line, um, these are usually offences. I mean, I've never seen in, in the laws of the game before description that something is usually an offence. It's either an offence or it's not an offence. Um, there's a lot of interpretation involved in whether something's dangerous or reckless, etc. But it doesn't... It, it, I've never seen in the laws of the game uh, the phrase usually an offence because then what, what are referees supposed to do? Um, do they... Do they do, it's what they feel like on the day or we have another set of uh, interpretive versions of the handball rule as, as UEFA have tried to apply in this tournament but anyway in terms of what that did for the football match it gave a team uh, who were clearly stronger going into it clearly had the better season were in better form the ability to play very defensively look for a goal on the counter or a set piece uh, and just wait for Tottenham to make a mistake. And we ended up, I think, with uh, with the worst Champions League final since 2003 uh, mm. because of it. what could have been a great game of football. Um, well, I, Duncan, I think- interestingly, I asked a former um, UEFA stroke FIFA referee, very, very, now retired, but very um, high profile, if he thought it was a penalty. Now, he is still part of the referees committee, which, which obviously decides on rule changes, stroke interpretations. And very interestingly, he said to me, it wouldn't have been a penalty if it was at the other end. So take meaning, on that. <laughs> meaning that the old world order still has an influence on, on special on young referees. That like this, a referee coming in, Liverpool, five former uh, wins in the Champions League, Tottenham, first ever final. Everyone expects the outcome to be Liverpool, pressures on him to perform, etc., etc. Have we ever seen a penalty given that quickly in such an important match? No, we haven't. Or not, uh, not, not of that nature. I'm, no. I cannot, re- I cannot I, remember I, I, a penalty of that level of controversy <clears throat> given so early in such yeah. an important game. Uh, exactly. You've just got to be clear and obvious. That's the rule. And I don't think it was either. But, but listen, I'm just throwing that in because I think it's an interesting statement to make albeit an off-the-record conversation, but this is someone who's refereed Champions League final before and and that was his interpretation of, you know, one of the reasons why the penalty was given. Look, we have we have VAR now and whenever, whenever there's a debate about a decision in football these days, you see the people who are in favour of that decision saying, well, VAR had a look at it and VAR agreed, therefore it was right. <laughs> and I find that in itself bizarre because there's enough demonstrations that VAR get things wrong um, in 
in the football we've seen since it's been introduced uh, for it to be obvious that it's not the case that simply because VR is involved in a game you're going to get come to the right conclusion and what have we had um, since the introduction of VAR to the World Cup and the Champions League final we've had two finals in which two handball penalties were fundamental in deciding the course of the game in the favour of the bigger team in both of those matches. Both of those handball penalties were at, in the most generous interpretation, uh, controversial and arguable decisions um, that could have gone either way in uh, normal circumstances. Yet, uh, the, VA, the referee uh, in the case of the Liverpool game and the, the referee and the VAR um, came down in favour of the bigger team in, in both matches. Um, is this helping football? Is this giving us better matches? Is it giving us more justice in games? Um, I think we have a problem with the laws and I think we have a problem with the idea that VAR um, guarantees correct decisions and matches and works as efficiently as the people at FIFA and UEFA would like you to believe it works. Duncan obviously will be very pleased to have heard this morning that um, VAR will be used for the first time in a um, UEFA-controlled competition for national team this week in the Nations League semi-finals and indeed the final next weekend. Uh, we look forward to having those conversations again later this week. We've talked a little bit about Pochettino and uh, his decisions. He's got another big decision to make, and that is whether he stays at Spurs. He was quite unclear again after the final when asked about what his future may be. Um, now, we've talked a lot uh, last week about the position at Juventus. Um, have you heard if Pochettino was contacted, what he said? Was there any update there? Well, look, he got, he's got Tottenham to the Champions League final. He lost to the better team. Liverpool deserved to, to be European champions um, over the course of uh, their Champions League campaign relative to Tottenham's. Um, he's now off the back of reaching the Champions League final. He's as much in demand as he has been before. He's clearly been canvassing his options in the European game. Um, some of those options have narrowed in the sense that Bayern have, uh, after coming close to changing their coach, have decided to stay with Niko Kovac. I'm told that Barcelona have now made a decision to stay with Ernesto Valverde. Um, the unexpected sacking of Allegri opened up another opportunity at a club that uh, Pochettino was a, a, a boyhood supporter of. Um, according uh, to my contacts in Italy, uh, Juventus did explore whether it would be possible to get Pochettino to come, um, having um, also, as we we talked about, tried to get Guardiola uh, to the club. Um, the sense from uh, Italy today is that Sarri is on the verge of being announced as Juventus manager, um, that they feel they can't get Pochettino out um, they feel they can't get Guardiola out of Manchester City, so they have to go with Sarri. Um, I reported on Saturday that uh, this, the Juventus sporting director had met Sarri in Milan 
uh, in the Palazzo Parigi Hotel there um, to discuss, obviously, uh, taking over at the club. Um, the expectation in Italy is that he will be announced as manager this week. Um, also reported at the weekend that, um, that Sari had uh, told Chelsea um, that uh, he would like to leave and suggested to Chelsea that they just make a clean break, i.e. that he would not uh, be compensated for the final year of his salary and that they should not expect compensation from whichever club in Italy he decided to move to. We'll wait and see if Chelsea have accepted that and whether he uh, is able to, to exit for free, but expect him to go. In Pochettino's case, um, the people around him have been indicating that he has shifted towards staying at Tottenham. Um, rather than talking about the opportunities elsewhere, there's been a suggestion that he's ready to start what he describes as a new chapter at the club. I believe um, during uh, the time they spent in Madrid, uh, Daniel Levy spent a lot of uh, time with Pochettino, but people um, observing those conversations uh, suggested that they look positive. And I think you can see around... Um, Tottenham in the sense that they've made a, a substantial bid for Giovanni Lo Celso, the Real Betis playmaker, um, of a level that would be a club record transfer for Tottenham. You can see around them the, the indications that Levy is going to put money on the table um, to strengthen the squad and take them on to the next level in the way that Pochettino has been asking for. And I think um, given the way Pochettino is as an individual, um, and given that the really great um, offer from a club uh, elsewhere doesn't seem to be available, there doesn't seem to be a club that's prepared to go to um, to the trouble of uh, of paying off Levy and getting involved in that negotiation process, and also of paying Pochettino's very high wage demands, that um, that that will be the resolution now that he will stay at Tottenham. Um, with a, a, a promise from Levy to uh, build a new or change the team in a direction which makes it easier for him to compete for the Champions League again and get closer to the top clubs in the Premier League. And, and I know for a fact as well that um, in those conversations with Levy uh, in Madrid last week, ahead of the final, um, Pochettino also um, reiterated his very strong interest in Fulham's young left wing backstroke um, midfielder Ryan Sessegnon, as well as um, James Madison, who we already spoke about earlier on the podcast, just being a candidate for Manchester United. Um, again, young players, Pochettino's prided himself uh, mostly, or not mostly, but in, in the majority of um, developing and bringing players into the team who may have potential rather than um, guaranteed form behind them and uh, and letting them express themselves in place. So I think it will be very interesting summer for Spurs in terms of the transfer market because Levy in the past has shown himself to be, as we always say, a very sort of hard negotiator, which generally translates to deals get done in the last week of the window, um, whereas Pochettino gets frustrated by that because he wants to work with new players in pre-season and set his team up and his squad up to do things properly from um, the get-go in August. And I think we've got an even earlier start than ever in the Premier League for next season. So that, again, will be an issue which will be bugging Pochettino 
Although I'm also told that he's now taking a well-deserved break <laughs> and he's not going to be thinking about it for at least 24 hours, given how obsessive he is. Doug, well, let's move. Look, yeah. look uh, Madison and Los Celso are, if you're going to look for compromise deals in, in terms of fitting Levy's strategy of younger players who can turn into superstars um, or near superstars in the way that Song Kyung Min have done and Christian Eriksen have done, then that Madison Lo Celso are that type. Um, they are both young. They're they're not going to come cheap, but it's not the same as um, as buying a finished product, twenty five, twenty six year old from one of the top clubs in terms of cost. So it, those are the kind of deals you would expect from um, a rapprochement between the two over how the club goes forward. That takes us nicely on to uh, Monday Transfer Window Podcast Edition regular, the heroes and villains of the last few days. Um, I'm going to ask Duncan to name his villain and uh, and then I will nominate my hero. Um, well, two two villains, um, which you probably guess at from given, given what I was talking about earlier, but I would have the referee from the Champions League final, Damir Skumina and the chief refereeing officer of UEFA, Roberto Rossetti, who took it on himself to um, ignore the laws of the game and uh, bring in uh, a what I think is an unfair handball interpretation of the handball rule, which has messed up several of the Champions League matches this season uh, and uh, resulted in what had been, I think, the best knockout stage, most dramatic knockout stage of the Champions League we've seen, ending with um, an appalling final to watch um, because of that rep, that penalty given in the first minute, um, which made it easy for Jurgen Klopp to uh, to be very defensive and uh, and very pragmatic and, uh, and finally um, bring a trophy to Liverpool um, after a, a seven-year wait. So for anyone who doesn't quite work that one out, Duncan Castle has now rewritten history and it was... 1-0 to Liverpool on Saturday night in Madrid. Not two, because we're cancelling that penalty out. Um, my hero is a little bit sentimental, and you know we're often cynical on this podcast, but I couldn't help myself. It's Brian Henderson, dad of Jordan. If you've not seen the video on social media, please do. Uh, he holds his son in his arms as he cries uncontrollably. And it turns out the reason for that is that his dad had recovered from throat cancer, and Jordan um, effectively was uh, banned from seeing him because he didn't want to. Didn't, Brian, his dad, didn't want Jordan to see him uh, in treatment, and therefore upset his career or his ability to do his job properly. And so that was a, a kind of proper ep- epiphanical moment, um, I think, for both of them. Um, but even more so because uh, Brian himself, if you watch the video carefully, is a classic dad and says, "There, there, son." That's enough now. You can go back to celebrating. And Jordan says, I just need one more hug. So uh, so we've gone from the tears of Klopp to the tears of, of Jordan and, uh, and Brian Henderson, my hero of this week. So uh, I'd like to say just to thank Duncan for um, all today's insight, news and analysis, which has been great. Um, we're now full steam in to the transfer window, people. So this is the kind of thing you'll be getting three times a week from us, obviously even including your questions answered, which comes up on Wednesday. Um, it just uh, leads me to say that if you want to continue the debate, 
with us. We have our own Transfer Window Podcast account at Transfer Podcast. Uh, Duncan Castles is at Duncan Castles. And self-explanatory, I'm at Garbo SJ. And we love to hear from you. You know we respond to you. It's all about the community and it's all about the debate. We will be back to fulfil all your podcasting needs on Wednesday with your questions answered, as previously said. And if you want to give something back, because uh, you know thousands of you love uh, what we're doing, please pop onto iTunes, give us a five-star review, and it makes us uh, easier. It makes it easier for us to just enlarge in the community, get the podcast out there, and get the debate even more diverse and include and be interesting as well, which it always is. So we shall um, be back on Wednesday. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Yeah.